I've been really looking forward for more than a week at the interview that you're about to hear. Today I'm interviewing Joel Wade. Joel is a professional psychotherapist in the positive psychology realm, whose that realm deals less with uh, fixing deep problems and more with how do you optimize your experience of life on earth and your sense of well-being and he's going to explain it a lot better than I can and before I give Joel a chance to do that I first want to also tell you that Joel is a goalie goalkeeper on a perennial world championship water polo team and just because it's kind of fun I'm going to ask Joel first about that so ah. Joel, congratulations! You've just come back from you've just come back from South Korea, where mm -hmm. your team placed uh, won the championship. Yes, yes, uh, it was great fun. And uh, part of what's fun about it is is some of my teammates I've been playing with for over forty years now. I have a, a friend that I played with in high school, and, and two college roommates, and and uh, the long friendships and and knowing each other and how each other plays too is, is just really so much fun i'm going to be asking joel some questions later in the podcast about teamwork and joel doesn't approach the answers to those with from a theoretical standpoint uh but from a real life experience standpoint based on many things but based partly on his own experience in championship water polo so Joel, let's, let's move on quickly to, uh, you've written uh, more than one book. The latest is The Virtue of Happiness. You're a student of and an expert in human happiness. And I know from knowing you that by that, you don't mean uh, cakes and balloons. You mean something a lot more enduring and profound. But why don't you tell us in your own words, what would you mean by human happiness? Yeah, it's it's... It's not just the smiley face or the, you know, Las Vegas or Hollywood version of, of happiness. Uh, when I talk about happiness, I talk about what Aristotle meant. Uh, the word he used was eudaimonia. And my favorite definition of that is success at being human. So it's more along the lines of being happy with your life, happy about your life, uh, satisfied, sort of a deep satisfaction and joy in living. And sometimes that means you get what you want or things go your way or you're having a really happy time. Sometimes that means, you know, life is sometimes painful and bad things happen and, and, and there's hardships and difficulty. And if you come at it from a place of genuinely looking for what makes a good life, you end up being more resilient through those times and being able to, to hang in there through it and persevere to the other side of it where you're going to be in a better place. And then you can enjoy when times are good, too. So it's a matter of being able to, to roll with, with the vicissitudes of life in a way that you can, you can really be satisfied with. Joel, when you read a lot of writers and listen to a lot of thinkers talk about human outcomes. There are certainly schools of thought that were basically the, the sort of 
very reactive, dependent, reactively dependent on what happens to us. Uh, you're certainly in the school that we have a certain amount of influence over our ability to experience happiness. Why don't you explain that, please? Yeah, that's this is really important because, of course, what happens to us matters. It, it, it matters whether we're treated well or whether we live in a environment that's you know beautiful or or or, or dangerous or that all matters but what matters more is how we approach it and how the beliefs we have about it and how we manage the situations we deal with if we're expecting everything to be perfect and and, and to go our way we're going to be very disappointed a lot in life because that happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen all the time. If we expect things to be uh, to ebb and flow in terms of the external world, then we're more prepared to deal with it in a way that we're going to be more effective and, and ultimately come through it better and happier. Joel, I've seen you more than once. I've seen you do this in person, but I've also seen you in one of your YouTube videos describe methods of achieving happiness partly by their opposite. Mm. So the, the three main things you can do to raise your level of unhappiness, uh, uh, why don't you talk about those for a minute? Oh, sure. Yeah, if if you wanted to be depressed, I could teach you how to do it. And uh, and I don't mean to make light of depression because it can be have a lot of different causes and, and, and elements to it. But there are things you can do that would definitely make it more likely that you would feel depressed. One of them is to be as self-centered as possible. So really absorb yourself in your own feelings, your own thoughts, your own reactions, your own fantasies and imaginations of what's going on with other people in relation to you and use uh, first person singular pronouns, I, me, and my and the more you can just absorb yourself in your own experience to the exclusion of what happens with other people or what's happening around you, that'll help you feel depressed. Another thing you can do is to ruminate and, and really wallow in the negative things, the disappointing things, the regrets, the, the hardships, the hurts, the, tra the traumas of your life and really spend a lot of time just orbiting around that planet of, of pain and woe. And you can really get a good sense of depression from, from getting in that place in your mind and practicing that over and over and over. And then the third thing I'd recommend if you want to be depressed, and I don't recommend that you do any of these, of course, is to think of yourself primarily as a victim, a victim of circumstances, a victim of other people and events, so that you're basically helpless to change things. And, and when bad things happen, you just have to sort of suffer with them. And that's what life is about. So if, if you're listening and you're feeling a little worse, I want to apologize because I feel a little worse myself describing these. But the antidote is to do the opposite. So you want to have a healthy self-reflection. Of course, what you're feeling and thinking matters. But if you have your focus primarily on your relationships with other people, uh, being curious about their experience and, and how the two of you are relating, 
the things that you have to do, your work, your, your activities, and, and being totally fully engaged in what you're doing, that will bring you out and, and bring more of a sense of joy and, and satisfaction. If, if you think about the past, rather than thinking about what went wrong or what was painful, if you focus more on the, the people and the events and the, and the opportunities that you have to feel grateful for, um, that is a much more strengthening thing to do. If you think about the things that I described just a few moments ago, they all weaken us. They make, they make us feel less capable, less likely to succeed or triumph. If you think about what you have to feel grateful for, you're going to feel more empowered because you're going to be aware of the gifts that you've been given and the opportunities and the good things that you have to stand on. It gives you a place to stand in order to engage the world more effectively. And then rather than thinking of yourself as a victim, there are plenty of things we don't have any control over. And that's that's part of life and that's reality. But if you focus on those things, you're going to feel you're going to feel bad and you're going to worry and you're going to feel uh, you know, stuck. So the trick is within all that we don't have control over, if you can identify the things that you do have some control over, the things you can take some action on and focus primarily on those, then you're going to feel much more effective and, and you're going to find ways through, ways to solve problems and, and to accomplish things where you may have felt stuck before. Joel, that's amazingly concrete and specific, right? So if I want to um, be unhappy, let me think a lot about myself and how I feel about everything, not you know, way past the point of healthy self-reflection. Let me ruminate about things I resent about my past and let me spend a lot of time worrying about things I can't control. And you'd say, what's, what's how bad I tend to feel chronically? Mm. Whereas and if I tend to look outside myself, get involved in things, feel a part of something, if I tend to look at the parts of my life experience that I should feel grateful for, and if I try to focus my thoughts on things I can influence, uh, I'm likely to feel a lot better. Yes. How am I doing? Yes, that's right on the money. Okay. And, and, and what else would you say tends to be true of people Again, we don't, we don't mean to make light of the things that we can't control. There are lots of reasons, uh, short-term reasons and maybe some chronic reasons that make it hard to be happy. But within the sphere of things we can influence and, and, and control, what are some other habits or yeah. focus areas you see? Well, I, I always like to put this in the context of, um, of improving your own personal level of happiness. Because... Everyone's different. Everyone has their own circumstances and temperament and, and internal experience. And we're all very, very different. So uh, I really want to steer away from sort of the Facebook version of happiness where all you're showing is the happy snapshots and the, the, the you know, just everything's great. Everything's wonderful today. Look at, look at how happy I am. I'm happier than anybody else on earth. So this isn't a competition between ourselves and somebody else or to have some ideal uh, because that's really um, well it's it's really kind of silly well, <laughs> and, I could even see that, that making you unhappy right yeah absolutely 
your situation to others. Yeah, because actually, that's if you another way to be miserable is compare yourself to other people. In fact, there was some research when after the Soviet Union fell, among some of the East European countries, their well-being went down because they were expecting all of a sudden to be as wealthy and and to have all the things that they saw were possible in the West. And of course it took some time for, and some of those countries are still on their way and working on it. So that comparison can really do a number on our, our well-being. And that's why the social media can be so, so harmful in, in this way. So really I want to encourage people to stay away from comparing yourself to other people and what they look like. Because I guarantee you what they're showing you on Facebook is not the whole picture. And uh, and that's okay for what it is, but the a real central idea that if you take nothing away from this but, but this is to focus on what improves your own sense of happiness and well-being and compare it to how you were before, you know. So compare different situations and notice what how you approach a certain situation increases or, or decreases your sense of well-being because you, you will find in doing that that you have a little you can do your own little research you know when I when I listen to the the news on the radio or watch it on TV you know I feel pretty bad when I listen to some music that I enjoy I actually feel pretty good so I think I'll listen to the the news and watch the news less and and I don't have to be apathetic but I don't have to dwell on it and I'm going to find music that I like and spend more time with that just notice what increases your sense of well-being and you can go a long ways just paying attention to that more specifically if you can think of three good things that happened at the end of the day uh, during that day and why they happened. And just just don't go into complexities of, well, it was sort of okay, or, but just it was things that were good that happened in the day. If you practice that most days for a few weeks, you're gonna feel better, because it, it focuses you on, on the things that you have to feel grateful for in the moment. And Joel, there's a theme in your books and in your publications, your sort of your, your podcast, I should say, and in some of what you've just said now, that these are these are habits. This takes actual focus and intentionality. Yes. Right? We can. Yeah. It sounds as if you're saying we can easily drift into bad habits that make us unhappy. So it takes some intentionality. Yes. To achieve that happiness, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, we get good at what we practice, whatever it is. So, if if you practice ruminating about uh, things that hurt you in the past, you're going to have gotten really good at that. And it's like, in a sense, you're paving a, a super highway to those feelings and those experiences, and you're going to dwell on them. You're going to easily go there. And so it's going to take some time to shift that, and you're, you're actually changing the wiring of your brain by doing this when you change a habit. If you consciously, deliberately practice focusing on what you have to feel grateful for also the things that you're proud of uh, I don't mean boastful arrogant pride but but taking stock of the things that you've earned the the the, the things that the risks that you've taken the effort you put in the growth that you've achieved in your life the things that you're proud of in that sense 
if you aim yourself in that direction and think of the good people in your life, think of the people you're grateful for and the good qualities, if you look for the best in people, you're going to start finding it. So this is almost something you can checklist, right? You can Absolutely. You can dedicate some time yeah. to doing the stuff that you're mm -hmm. talking about, yeah. and it's worth doing that, yeah. and it, otherwise it's easy to drift. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and give yourself, do it deliberately for a couple of months, and it'll, it'll be easier for you. But it's something you'll want to stay vigilant probably for the rest of your life because the old habits had plenty of time to, to you know, pave their, their roads. Is it a general principle that bad habits take less effort and so you mm. have to bring intentionality to good habits? Well, I would say uh, we all have a lot of habits and, and part of what happens is, is in creating those habits, whether we did them intentionally or just learned them on the street or, you know, when we're mildly unconscious growing up, they've, they've established themselves and we have a system in our brain that, that releases dopamine when we go down the, the direction that we've trained that part of our brain to take us down. So there's a whole system that keeps us in our, our uh, status quo because that part of our brain is just working for, not our whole brain, but that part of our brain is just doing what we told it to do. So there's good habits that we take for granted and then there's bad habits that we take for granted. It's just the bad habits hurt. And the good habits, we tend to sort of habituate the good stuff. And so it's worth really deliberately practicing and giving yourself the time to hone these new skills and pave these new pathways. I've also heard you talk about a problem-solving mindset. Mm. What do you mean by that, and why is it so important? Well, Marty Seligman uh, has done a lot of work on this, and he calls it learned optimism. And uh, optimism can be a little misleading, because for some people it means just pretending everything is sunny and, and, and good, whether it is or not. But really what he meant is it's a hopeful, optimistic stance which allows you to solve problems. So it's a problem-solving approach to life where if I'm more optimistic, I'm more likely to look for solutions to problems. Whereas if I'm more pessimistic, I'm less likely to look for solutions and more likely to see how they'll, or imagine how they, they will go wrong or will never work. So I won't tend to try as much. I'll give up earlier. So optimism is a problem-solving mindset. It's like, oh, cool, here's this problem. It's a little painful, but I bet there's a solution. I bet there's a way to deal with this. Let's keep looking and keep looking and, and, and work on it. And that's, a, that's also kind of goes along with uh, Carol Dweck's uh, different mindsets. So she, she uh, has a great book, Mindset. Uh, where she talks about the difference between a, a fixed trait mindset and a growth mindset. In a fixed trait mindset, I think of my, my gifts and my abilities as just inborn. So any success I have is just kind of a matter of luck, a matter of my genes or, or inborn talents. And so what that creates is sort of a fragile self-concept, because what if I 
don't do very well. If, I'm, if I've always been told I'm brilliant and then I do poorly on a test, how do I make sense of that? Maybe that, that, that they must have been wrong, all those people that said I was brilliant. So crash goes my self-concept. Whereas a growth mindset is more focused on what we earn. So the, the effort and, and the, the energy that we put into learning and growing and honing our skills and, and really working on, on achieving uh, better and better results with what we do. And then that gives a very resilient self-concept because I know if, if I don't do so well one time, I can, I can think, well, hmm, I wonder what I can do different next time. And then it becomes fun because uh, every setback is also an opportunity. And it's, it's, I may learn a totally new direction of things. There, there, there's a, the world opens up to me whether I succeed or fail. I've only done a cursory reading of Carol Dweck's work, but I'm committed to getting more exposure to it. And what I've seen is one line she says, don't say I can't do this, say I haven't done this yet. Yes. So the power of yet. Mm-hmm, yes because I can't do this is sort of an all-or-nothing statement, right? I mean, how do you know you can't do it? How do you know you won't like it if you don't try it? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well. So, uh, changing subjects or changing gears, a lot of our happiness either happens or, or, or doesn't happen in our roles as members of a group. Hmm. Especially, and, and this podcast is mainly about the workplace and how to be happy and effective in the workplace, which yeah. is where most adults spend quite a lot of their time, uh, what do you see in terms of what, what are the main things that tend to mark and or influence a good team? Hmm. Well, there's, there's a lot of qualities that, that go into this. One of them is uh, a really effective team will have a high ratio of positive to negative emotional experience. So six to one is, is the ratio that's, that's talked about with this. And, and when it's been measured, that's the most effective work groups have about a six to one ratio of positive and neg negative emotional experience, which means that people treat each other well. They treat each other with respect and, and dignity and also a sense of playfulness and a sense of, of possibility. And so the workplace is a place to explore and hone your skills. And another, another quality is work allows us to get into a state of flow, which Mahai Cheek sent me high has studied people in different, different experiences in life, you know, and, and their sense of uh, emotional experience during it. And it turns out we're, we're happiest when we're in a state of total absorption in what we're doing, work or play. And work gives us an opportunity to hone our skills to a high level and, and be challenged at that high level. And that's one of the most joyful experiences we can have. The, the thing is, when we're in a state of flow, we're not necessarily thinking about how we feel. We're in it. And so it's not until afterwards we think back and go, wow, that was really, that was really fun. Um, so it's not about moment to moment, oh, woohoo, this feels good right now. But being totally absorbed in something, and especially being absorbed in something that challenges a high level of skill, 
is one of the best places that we can be as human beings. It is funny how many people regret retiring. Mm. So we, a lot of people can be in the mode of, I'm working hard so that someday I can be happy. Yeah. And not maybe uh, keeping score mm-hmm. on what you just said. The ability to say, I'm actually having, I'm actually having a pretty good experience working. Yeah. Yeah. There's some horrible workplaces, right? Oh, sure. But, but in a good workplace yeah. where, uh, where you're in a position to be in that sort of flow, yeah. that can be a pretty nice place to be. Yeah, and I, I think um, savoring that and acknowledging that is important. W- one of the things we talked about gratitude, if you really want to have a, a deeper experience of gratitude, one of the things you can do is imagine... Uh, something that you're grateful for but imagine missing the opportunity to to do that or missing the opportunity to have that person in your life or have the workplace you're in in your life and imagining what life would have been like had you missed out on that opportunity and then reminding yourself oh wait here I am having that sense of absence for a moment in your mind can remind you oh this is really actually very cool and this this is this is a good place because we tend to habituate everything. We tend to, if things are really good, we get used to that. And so a team, a good team, has trust and respect. And one measure of that, you said, is a high ratio of positive experiences mm. to bad experiences. And it doesn't mean you're not working hard. It doesn't mean you're not feeling stress or intensity. Mm. But it's uh, you're not you're not seeing uh, I don't know what the word is pathology in the in right. The, in the inner in the interface yeah that's not a good way to put it but yeah. I think you know what I mean yeah and it also doesn't mean that there's no conflict yes conflict is necessary yeah uh, it, it's how we get to know each other it's how we we find our differences it's also how we we can be open to our differences mm-hmm. what matters isn't that there's no conflict what matters is how we treat each other given that there's conflict mm-hmm. so if you can start with accepting that conflict is a given and then agree to treat each other with respect and, and kindness and uh, looking for the best, assuming the best, assuming good intentions with each other and from each other, then you, we can deal with conflicts. I know it, uh, with couples, with married couples, the happiest married couples, and, and this is from the, uh, John Gottman's work, uh, have 69% of conflicts that never go resolved. So it's, it's not the absence so, of conflict. No, a happy marriage isn't the absence of conflicts. It's treating each other well, given that there's conflict. Treating each other as allies and friends and with kindness and, and caring and support and wanting the best for each other. And it, that's the same recipe for a team. So what are the implications for leadership in all this? Mm-hmm. So say you're leading an organization you want to foster a workplace that optimizes the opportunity for people to be happy. It's not the cappuccino machines, is it? No. What is it? No, it's it's. You want to make it possible for the people that you're leading to do their work really well, and for them to feel the satisfaction, for them to have the resources and the support and and the uh, what they need to do to do their work really well. And to set an example of, of a, an optimistic problem-solving atmosphere that that c- 
comes a lot from the leader. Uh, there's a, a study that Martin Seligman did of, of two teams, the, the 76ers and, and the, uh, the Boston Celtics. And I think the, the, if I remember right, the 76ers were, the Philadelphia 76ers were more pessimistic and the Boston Celtics were, were more optimistic. So the Celtics, after they lost a game, they tended to do better the next game. The 76ers, if they lost a game, they tended to do worse the next game. So there's a big result of, of a sense of optimism. But then he did a deeper look into it, and what he found was, he and his colleagues, that the coaches were where that started. So you could tell the success or the failure, the, the resilience of a team by the behavior of their leaders, of, of their coaches. And so if you're setting an example of optimism and, and mutual respect and, and, and kindness and, and with high expectation, kindness isn't about, you know, just anything goes, and a sense that, of course, we're going to solve this problem. Let's do it. Let's, let's figure it out. Uh, then you're going to have much higher likelihood to have a team that functions well and, and that enjoys their functioning. Joel, sometimes you consult with the leadership at uh, my company, Interlox, and mm -hmm. its parent company, Latrum. You've studied the Latrum business philosophy and you've shown a lot of enthusiasm for it. What are some of the elements that you find most attractive in the late-term business philosophy. Yeah, well, I, I think I've told you that in, in really looking at this that, that uh, uh, you guys are asking for it in terms of it, it almost requires that, that everybody aim themselves towards optimism and growth and, and bringing out the best in themselves. And part of it is, is the philosophy is very practical. It's doable. A lot of companies have a mission statement or a vision statement, and it's this a very nice sentiment. And it's but it's also very abstract. It's like we're going to be uh, have high integrity. Okay, great. But but with your philosophy, it's laid out very very clearly and specifically. You know, you want you want to focus on on reality. You want to you want to look at things what's true here and that allows you not to take it so personally it's a matter of a problem to solve you know you're, you're trying to solve problems here and let's let's get to what's true about this problem quickly so then you can come up with the best solution and that's fun and that's satisfying for everybody you want to uh, I'm just thinking of some things off the top of my head you want to have respect for the absent so you're not you're not talking badly about people behind their backs if you have something to say, you say it to the person that you need to say it to. And that encourages very clear, respectful communication. It also gets you unstuck from, from this kind of ruminating, gossiping atmosphere that plagues so many workplaces and relationships in general. And, and the focus is on, uh, we're, here to, uh, we're here to do cool stuff. And, and, and it's a very practical set of, of tools for managing conflicts. Conflict is welcome, and it, it's to be done respectfully. 
it's a it's just a very practical set of tools to to actually use day to day. This is a postscript to the recording that we finished yesterday of my interview with Dr. Joel Wade on happiness and the workplace. If you've listened to the first part of the session, you probably left with a feeling of unfinished business. That's because I have a fear of going much longer than about 30 minutes. I, I worry about losing my audience, rightly or wrongly. So that's why I wound it down. You can be sure that we'll do more interviews with Dr. Joel Wade. I'm just a big fan of him, and I love talking to him. If you want to know more about Dr. Joel Wade, you can buy his book, The Virtue of Happiness, and you can also go to his website, which is just drjoelwade.com. That's just D-R-J-O-E-L-W-A-D-E.com. Thanks for listening. See you soon.